If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11 this morning as we're continuing on in our series, Authentic Living Fully Integrated Lives. And so we've been talking about how we, ch- we are challenged with the kind of the compartments of our, of our life, how we live a certain way over here or think a certain way over here, and then we have a different kind of reality over here, and we don't want those two realities to come together. So we, we tend to be not authentic, but kind of compartmentalized and segregated. But when you choose to follow Jesus, one of the things he does is he kind of brings you into one person and causes you to have to deal with what's deep inside of you and brings it to the surface, which causes us to be authentic. And so this morning, we're going to talk about how we authentically walk out loving relationships, actually loving each other, which is supposed to be kind of a a sign of who we are and followers of Jesus, that, that we actually love each other. And so this morning, with that in mind, before we jump into the passage, I want to kind of give you a little bit of a context that's really important. Uh, I know sometimes when we're confronted with a, a general category that maybe we're processing through in our life, if we stay at the surface level or if we stay kind of generic, we can say, hmm, I'm okay, I'm good. So like, just say, hey, are you getting along with everybody in your life? And you're like, oh yeah, you know, I love everybody. I don't have hard feelings with anybody. Until one name gets thrown and you're like, oh yeah, I guess maybe that person. And then maybe another name like, oh yeah, you know, we're not getting along too well. And yeah, I know I fought with my spouse this morning and I screamed at my kids and I'm not doing really well with my parents. And, and then all of a sudden you start realizing, wow, as I get from the general to the specific, I realize I got an issue. And so what I'm gonna ask you to do this morning is as we talk about loving relationships, I'm gonna ask you to think of maybe the one or two, and for some of us, the 10 people that maybe right now you're not quite getting along with. Maybe there's some issues in your relationship with that person, and I want you to have that person or that group of people in your mind as we walk this morning because that is a tangible way to allow this message to be practical to the reality of where we're living, not just like, ah, I get along with anybody. I'm fine with everybody. Not true. If that were the case, then we wouldn't even have this portion of Scripture in the Bible, but Jesus knew, inspired the Apostle John to write this because he knew that today, 2016, we would still struggle with, with relationships. So um, with that in mind, I'm going to start kind of at the end. So look at verses 9 through 11, uh, because John kind of lays down in those verses that, that when we walk in the opposite of love with each other, which is hatred, there's a blindness that is bred in us, and it causes some things to happen. But he starts in verse 9. He says in verse 9, he says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And whoever loves his brother abides in light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is, is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So I want to start there, and then we'll, we'll work our way back to the beginning of the passage. But start with the blindness that settles into our lives when we, instead of loving somebody, we hate them. Now, many of us would not say, well, I hate that person. But the way that you feel and the thoughts that you have and the actions sometimes that you take actually do demonstrate that there is true hatred inside of us towards another person. So there's three things that John kind of highlights that, that kind of that blindness of hatred breeds in our lives, whether we know it or not. The first thing he mentions in verse 9 is that it, it breeds dishonest living. And that we can't even be honest with ourselves, we can't be honest with other people, we, we, we're not even honest with God. He says, whoever says he's in the light, which means he knows the light, he knows God, and hates his brother, is still in darkness. There's still a darkness over our life. Sometimes we try to convince ourselves that, hey, as long as I'm good with God, then everything's good. And we almost think that our relationship with God, this vertical relationship, is kind of exclusive and it has no bearing on any other horizontal relationships that we have. So we have convinced ourselves that I can be good with God even though I'm not good with other people. 
And that's dishonest because when you realize that the God of the universe that you're good with on the vertical is the one who created the person on the horizontal that you hate, you realize you have a problem because the way you relate to that person also determines the way you relate to God. They're interconnected. And so what John's saying is that there's this deception, this darkness that comes over us, this blindness. When we convince ourselves that I can walk into a church gathering or I can be in in relation with people and not be on the same page with them, but hey, me and God are good. I had my devotions this morning. I prayed this morning. I worshiped when Danny told me to worship. I'm me and God. We're good. But all these other people, they have issues, right? That's, you can't live that way. It's dishonest. Because when we convince ourselves that we can live that way, then what happens is that over time, we, we experience more and more brokenness in our relationships. And that's why we can, in one moment, we can worship God vertically, and then we can turn around either, either verbally or in our minds, and we can rip somebody to shreds. Because what, this relationship isn't impacted by this one, but they are. They're not in two different compartments. They're, they're, they're integrated. That's what authentic means. It's that, that, that part, portion of being integrated. Kind of the full-blown outcome of that is that when we live in fractured relationships with each other and think we're okay with God, we turn on each other. And the Bible defines what that looks like, the full-blown look like that, and that, that's called gossip. That's when we have an issue with somebody, and instead of dealing in a right relationship with that person, we take that offense and we share it with everybody else around us to somehow justify ourselves that that person is wrong and we are right. Anybody ever want to admit that you did that? I have. That is the single greatest destroyer in the church, is gossip. We think, oh, there's all these other things. No, it's how we turn on each other instead of turning towards each other and working out our relationships in a healthy context, truly learning to love each other. And that's why, just a side note, as a part of Antioch Church, what we have a conviction is that we really, it's, this is probably a strong t- term or a strong statement, we have a zero tolerance for, for gossip. We have actually have a, a gossip policy in place. If you go to a line seminar tomorrow night, you'll probably hear it. Let me reiterate it for those of you who either need a refresher or you haven't heard it before. So if somebody comes to you and they share that they have an offense, which means they're upset at somebody, something happened, and they come to you and they're sharing this, and you hear it once, I understand, maybe they had a bad day, but if they come to you a second time, and they really have an issue with somebody else. And we have a tendency in the church to spiritualize our gossip. We call it prayer requests. I need you to pray with me about this person. Or the other thing is, I just need to process this. That's code word for gossip. Because your process about somebody else uh, with a third party is never going to resolve your relationship with them. So if someone comes to you and you know that they're, they're offended, then you're to say to them, hey, it sounds like you are, you're an issue with that person. You're offended by them. So uh, you need to go to that person and make it right because I can't change the situation for you. Only you, the two of you, can get together and, and resolve this thing. So you need to go to that person. But to give it teeth, you mention to them, I'm going to give you one week to do that. And then at the end of the week, you check back in and you tell them that if at the end of the week you haven't gone to that person, I will take it upon myself to go to that person on your behalf and let them know that you are offended with them. So it forces people together. When, when in every church that I pastored, we've put that gossip policy in place and when people live by it, gossip disappears in the church. It does every time because what happens is you realize that when you're about to open your mouth and dish on somebody else and you know that the gossip policy is in place, you realize, oh, that means I'm going to have to deal with it. If I open my mouth to somebody else, they're going to force me to the other party. So what happens is you have a tendency to be quiet and go deal with it. 
Or if you're the kind of person who says, you know, I don't know why, but everybody comes to me with their problems. I just must be so kind and compassionate and soft place that people come to me and tell me how they're struggling with other people. Nine times out of ten, the problem is that you're a gossip. That's what it is. You don't challenge people to make their relationships right, so they come to you to, to talk about everybody else, and you never help them live out healthy relationships. So the moment that you change that and that person realizes if I go to so-and-so and I share this, they're gonna force me to make this right, they won't come to you anymore. They'll do the biblical thing. Before they leave, they come to the altar to worship God, they will leave their gift there and they will go and they will make their relationships right as Jesus instructed us to do. So second thing, that's the first thing that the blindness uh, or hatred creates or breeds dishonest living. Then it also breeds more brokenness. Verse 10, John says, Whoever loves his brother abides in light, and in him there is no cause for stumble. This is really, really important. If our relationships are right, it breeds health in our lives. If our relationships are wrong and broken, it breeds more brokenness. John's saying, listen, if you're in the light and you are in the light in relationship with each other and with God, then there is no cause for further stumbling in your life or in the lives of people around you. But the opposite is true, that if you live in broken relationships, you are setting yourself up and other people around you who you're in broken relationships with to move down the line of the kind of the, the, the sin kind of progression, which is it leads to the second, third, fourth, fifth generation of sin in our lives. So let, let, me, let me explain this. So, so it leads to brokenness in our life. So perfect example is poverty. Uh, poverty is not a sin, but poverty is a result of sin. And one of the, the, the big kind of issues that we have is that we are convinced, especially in our country, because we are wealthy compared to the world standards, that the answer to poverty is more resource. We think that poverty is just a lack of resources. It's not. The core issue with poverty is broken relationships. It's true acro across the globe. It's true in our country. So and the, the way that you can know this is if you've ever gone through a season of, 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 of kind of maybe you couldn't make ends meet and, and, and things are difficult, you know what it is to, to be in that, but you know that there's a bigger story than just the fact that you don't have resource. So if you've ever, if you have anybody who is a, a friend who's lived on the street or someone who finds himself in a homeless situation or in, or in deep poverty, listen to the story that they'll tell you. I can guarantee you almost every time you're gonna hear that where poverty started in their life was where there was a broken relationship. It started when I was growing up in a household that was dysfunctional and my parents abused me. So when I was 15 years old, I ran away. I had to get out, so I ended up on the street. And as a result of that, I tried some substances that I shouldn't, I got addicted. And then I got into a relationship with another person and I moved in with them, and then we had a fallout, so I was back on the street. Do you see the theme? Where's the theme? It's broken, what? Relationships. Poverty globally, same thing. If you go to Africa and you ask Africans the question, do you just need more resource? No, they don't need more resource. They need actually, they need leadership that isn't broken. That's the issue that we have so many times in poverty. And we think it's just, oh yeah, it's not a relational issue. It's just, let's give more money. Let's be more generous. I watched a news report this morning. Side note, really interesting. We are super generous as Americans, but we have a problem. We don't ask the question, what, what's the real need? We just want to give. So when disaster strikes the world right now, we are the first nation to give, but we don't always give what's needed. For example, there, there was, uh, when there was uh, things happening in Rwanda, somebody actually sent medicine to treat frostbite to Rwanda, Africa. How, how is that going to help? There are actually places in Haiti right now where there are landfills with clothes that have rotted and they actually had to burn them because the clothes went toxic because somehow Americans thought that after the earthquake, everybody needed clothes in Haiti. 
Nobody asked the question what they needed. They said, oh, let's send clothes. And within those clothes, you know what they sent? Some that were high heels. Like, oh yeah, that's what every Haitian needs after an earthquake is a pair of high heels. I'm not trying to be mean, but it's just that we don't ask the question. We send water. Every time there's a crisis, people put money down and they send pallets of water. And when the water gets there, there's a problem. They, uh, there was one disaster. They said $300,000 worth of water was sent to help. And that $300,000 will actually allow people to drink in that area for one day. But they said there are relief organizations spread out throughout the globe who have filtration systems that cost $300 that can service a village of 10,000 people and sustain them forever. But we don't want to give the 300. We want to send the water. Why? Because we're not realizing the issue that people are dealing with. What's going to resolve the brokenness and poverty is relational issues in our life. And that's why it's so important. When you allow yourself to be unresolved with somebody or they with you as well, you're opening the door for other brokenness to occur in your life and in their life. You are causing somebody else to stumble because you refuse to reconcile a broken relationship and vice versa is true. Then the third thing that John highlights for us about this, this blindness and what it breeds is it breeds confusion. He says, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has done what? It's blinded his eyes. The broken relationship, the hatred has blinded his eyes. So even though he thinks he sees what's right, he can't really see why because he's in the darkness. And when we live in the darkness, the danger of darkness is that you don't know what's there. You don't know what's in front of you. If you ever walked into a dark room and you can't see anything, you don't see the little stool that's down there about knee high that's gonna shank your shin when you take the next step. You don't see it, why? Because it's dark. The same thing is true in our relationships. When, when our relationships are dark, it spreads to the rest of our lives. And when you try to navigate, when you can't see, you're always in danger of running into things that you don't anticipate. Anybody ever driven in fog? Anybody ever driven in the San Joaquin Valley through Thule fog? Oh, yeah, I talked, Liz grew up in Dinuba. You can pray for her, she's recovering. But no, no offense. But my parents live in Fresno and I still pray for them. I'm sorry, I don't know why, they just like Fresno. But, but every, especially when we were in Oregon, we would drive down to visit my parents in Fresno and they always would love to do it at Christmas time, which is in the wintertime when there's more fog in the valley. So if you've ever driven that, it's not just like, oh, look, there's a little finger of fog that I just drive through and then I'm out of it. It's like this thick blank that comes right down to ground level. And so one year we were leaving, it's like four or five in the morning, we were leaving to head back to Oregon, we're leaving Fresno, and I'm not kidding you, it's five hours from Fresno to Redding, and usually you drive for an hour and you would get out of that fog, but it never cleared. For five hours, we were in this thick fog that you're driving along and you're just praying that the headlights in, or the taillights in front of you don't disappear. Because if they disappear, it's not that the person in front of you is going faster than you. That means you can't see them, even if they're 10 feet in front of you. And so for five hours, I'm driving in this, and you're like, I'm just like so intense. I don't even know what's going on in the car. I'm just making sure that I don't rear-end the person in front of me. And then I'm looking in my rearview mirror to make sure I can see the headlights of the person behind me. Because I know if they disappear, I know I'm in trouble too, because then they can't see me. For five hours, and to the point where you're like, sometimes you're like, okay, okay, I'm at 65, I'm at 55, I'm at 45, I'm at 30 because I still can't see the person in front of me. For five hours, Kim had to literally like rip the, my hands off the steering wheel because it was so intense. Why? Because I couldn't see, and if you can't see, you don't know what's there. And there's a, there's a tension that we live under when we live in broken relationships, and it, it just permeates every aspect of our life. 
Because we don't know where the next attack's coming from. We don't know where the next thing's coming from. Why? Because there's brokenness inside of us, and it causes tension in all areas. Why? Because there's a confusion. We can't see clearly around us. Maybe you can think about those moments of your life, or maybe you've experienced peace relationally with people around you. When that comes over us, there's this clarity that comes to our life, this understanding that we have that God intended for us. And that's why John is giving us th- this warning in these last three verses of the passage. So, but go ahead, look at the first two verses. I want to start there, and then we'll jump in actually to another passage. So John starts out by saying this. He says, Beloved, in verse 7, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new command that I give you, a commandment that I give you, I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Who's John talking about? Light is not just this kind of distant kind of thing that we see in the sky. Light is a reference to Jesus. And he's saying that I'm not writing you something brand new, but it it will come across as brand new because it's coming in the form of Jesus. The light is here. The light is shining. And that what he's saying is that the light that shines into our life that allows us to have authentic, healthy, loving relationships comes through the demonstration of who the light is. It's Jesus. So if you want to know how to live in a healthy, authentic relationship with people around you, you live like Jesus lived. You love like Jesus loved. He is the definition for humanity. He shows us what it looks like. And so many times we look at Jesus and go, oh, you know, I could never be like Jesus because he was God. But you know what? Jesus chose to live under the power of the Holy Spirit when he walked the planet. He demonstrated what life is look, could look like, what it's possible to actually be like. And so if that's true, what John is saying, he's saying, listen, if, if you really want to experience, you want to be, move beyond the hate that you feel in your heart for other people, and you truly want to love other people as Jesus loved, then take him as the example of what it means to truly love. So that's what I want to do this morning. We're not going to go to a passage in the Gospels, although the Gospels give us the best definition of who Jesus is and the best understanding. There's a passage in Philippians chapter 2 I want you to turn to. If you have your Bibles, flip to Philippians 2. We'll look at verses 3 through 5. Because in these words that we're going to look at, Paul actually writes and says, this is the way that we should live our lives because this is the mindset, the lifestyle, and the way that Jesus lived his And so let me read these verses, and we'll talk about loving as Jesus loved in our relationships. So Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying this is, this is the mindset of Jesus. This is what we should have in our relationships. So let's kind of walk through those together. So the first thing, the way that we love as Jesus loves, the first thing that we see from what Paul writes is that we have to learn to live selflessly. Much easier said than done. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. What is selfish ambition? It is using a situation or a person as a means to your end. It is looking at a person as, as an object or something that can be used or a tool that gets you to what you really want. It's not letting them be the end. It's let, letting them just simply be the means to the end in life. And so it's using people. And so Paul's saying, listen, if you're going to live as Jesus lived or love like he loved, you can't have that motivation that I'm just going to use people around me. None of us ever use people, do we? We all use each other constantly. But it's a struggle for us to think about how, what, what places do we find ourselves 
where we actually are orchestrating circumstances and situations and we are benefiting ourselves at the expense of other people, whether they know it or not. And most likely that they don't know it, that we're just taking advantage of people. Jesus never took advantage of anybody. He was always thinking about others before he was thinking about himself. I used to collect baseball cards when I was younger and I did it for a long time so I had a pretty decent collection but I wasn't, it wasn't before, it was before like the massive craze of like collector cards that, you know, then that's when the adults got involved and it all got ruined for kids. And so, but, it, but I know I had some valuable cards but I just kind of made this decision one day I was done. I didn't want to collect baseball cards anymore and so my cousin who was a few years younger than me, he was into baseball cards and so I thought well I'll just give my collection to him and so I went over to his house one day and I just like had boxes of cards and I gave it to him and and I didn't really know the value of the cards I had I knew that I had one card in particular I didn't know the exact dollar amount but I had a, a 1974 Pete Rose it was in good condition I thought that's worth some money I'll give it to my cousin you know and I'm sure he'll he'll enjoy that so I, I give it to him we're going through the cards and he just he loved it he loved it, getting all these new cards and so the next week I came back to his house and, and I said, so what do you think of that 74 Pete Rose that I gave you? And I was kind of wanting to pat myself on the back. And he goes, oh, he goes, it's a great card. He goes, I traded it. I'm like, you traded it? What do you mean you traded it? He goes, yeah. He goes, my friend down the street, he collects cards too. And, and he saw that card and he, he, he gave me some cards and said, these cards are better. And, and he traded it. I said, well, what did you trade it for? So he, gave, he said, he gave me three cards for just the one Pete Rose card. I'm like, what cards? He pulls out three baseball cards, and to this day, I can't even tell you who the players are. They're like no-namers. Maybe they like had a good, one good year, and then they blew up, and they were out of the league. So he traded. He, worked, he knew my cousin wasn't smart enough to know that that Pete Rose card, which, by the way, I looked up this week, it's estimated to be worth about 350 bucks in, in okay condition. Stink, right? <laughs> but now I shouldn't have looked it up this week because now I'm even more mad at my cousin's friend. But of course, he saw the opportunity, and this is exactly what Paul's talking about, that if I'm making this decision, I'm making this decision based on what? My selfish ambition to use somebody, even though they don't know it, for my benefit. Do we do that? Because what, what we have to learn is that Jesus never, ever did that. Not one time can you ever find record of Jesus using a situation or manipulating a person without them even having an idea so that he could benefit himself. It never happened. That's what true love looks like. That's what authentic relationships look like is that we don't use each other. Second thing is that we love like Jesus loves when we learn to live humbly. And going on to verse three, he says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Why is that important? So when Jesus came on the scene, when Jesus came to the planet, we know that he was fully God and fully man. Do you think that there was ever in human history any other person more significant than Jesus? No. But Paul writes, Jesus' mindset is what? Never once did he think of himself more significant than anybody else, even though he was more significant. He never allowed himself to live that reality out, to think, wow, hey, I am God in human flesh. They should treat me as such. He never took advantage of situations because what he, he never came for himself. He came for other people. His life was not about himself. His life was for others. And how many times do we allow that to happen in our lives where we walk into a room and in our minds we justify how valuable we are compared to everybody else and why we deserve more than anybody else? Why? Because in our minds we think of ourselves as more significant. We value ourselves more than others. But authentic love actually places others first. Even though you may be smarter, you may be more influential, you may be more significant, you never act that way. You actually allow other people to have that role 
in their, in their life as you allow them to be more significant. So I, I learned this firsthand from a friend I have up in, in Oregon. Um, we had just moved to Oregon, weren't there for very long. We went on kind of a, a, like a church camp out thing and there was these avid runners in our church up there. So if when you move to Oregon, everybody runs. And I figured out why. It's because it's the only way you can keep warm in the winter. You just have to run, even in the rain. I mean, people literally, you drive down the street and it's as though it's sunny in 75 in Oregon, but it's like 40 and raining and there's still like 20 people running on the sides of the street. It's crazy. So you, you, you can't really resist the whole running culture. And so we, we're, we lived uh, like literally like 20 miles from Nike headquarters. It's like the running mecca of the world. So there's this avid running group in our church. And so we go to this camp out. And so some guys say, hey, we want to go for a run. And I'm thinking, I can hold my own. You know, I'm, I'm healthy. I'm strong. And I've, I've run, you know, like five years ago. So we go out for a run and we are out on the beach. So we're running, and it's just this flat beach. I'm like, I'm loving this. I can do this. For two miles, I'm keeping up. I'm just slightly winded. They're all talking. I'm like, you keep talking. I don't have to talk, so I can just run. And we're doing fine. And then about two miles into the run, one of them turns and heads up towards this mountain. And so we start hitting elevation. So I'm like, all right, see how I do here. So we turn, and there's four other guys, and there's me. And so we go up in the first 20 yards. I'm like, ah, this is, I'm feeling a little burned, but ah, I can do this. Then another 20 yards, I'm like, ooh, wow, I'm really feeling the burn. Now I'm starting to have trouble breathing. And then like another 10 yards, I'm like, oh man, I think I'm gonna die. (laughs) That's what I felt like. And so you you just feel this. And so, and I could tell the guys took me on this run because they're like, we're gonna show him what we're made of. Because they had, they, in in Newburgh, they have come a bent against Californians. Like, you think you're all that. We're gonna show you you're not. So they were out to prove that. So they knew they were gonna go up this mountain. So they're they're going. And and so I, I finally, about 60 yards up the mountain, I'm like, I'm toast. So I stopped, and three of them just kind of kept on running, and I couldn't see through the back of their head, but I'm sure there's this huge smile on their face like, we got him. But then one of them stops, turns around, and he comes back to me. He goes, you doing okay? I'm like, man, I'm, I'm feeling it. I said, I haven't run in a while, and my chest is burning, and my legs are burning, and he goes, that's all right. He goes, just, just take a break. Just rest. I'm like, okay. So we're standing there, and three minutes goes by. He goes, you feeling all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm all right. Let's do it again. So let's try. He goes, okay, let's try. So we start running really more like walking quickly up this mountain, and literally like another 20, 30 yards, I'm like, oh, I'm going to die. He goes, okay, stop, stop. He goes, let's just wait. He goes, just, you know, we're hanging out. We did like two, three, four times up finally to the top of this mountain. And, and as we finished, I'm like, man, thanks for, thanks for sticking with me. Now, at the moment, I didn't know who he was. I knew his name. And I knew he was somebody who was a part of the church. He actually knew he was one of the leaders of the church, but I didn't know who he was. This guy was a hardcore triathlete. He had completed an Ironman and multiple marathons. The guy was a stud. He could run me off the map. He was far better runner than any of the other three guys who, who got me when they ran up the mountain. But he stops, and instead of saying, you know what, I could s- just smoke this guy. I'm a triathlete. I'm a marathoner. He's the only one that stopped. He worked at Nike. I mean, this guy had running in his blood, and he's the only one that stopped. And I remember that. I'll never forget that. He became one of my good friends because I realized he was far more significant than me when it came to running, but he didn't act that way. He actually put me first. In fact, when we went up the mountain, he never led. He let me lead. He let me set the pace. He always stayed behind me, even though he could have just ran right past me. He always stayed with me. Why? Because in that moment, he demonstrated something that I think that Jesus calls us all to demonstrate. Even if we know we're more significant than any other human being, we never show that. We treat others as they are more significant than us. That's the way Jesus lived. And then the third thing in verse four is we love as Jesus loves when we live generously. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
to the interests of others. So this is difficult because we like the first part, which is let each of you look not only to your own interests. Yeah, I got to take care of myself, which is true. But we would like the verse to stop there. But also to the interests of others. Authentic love sees beyond the needs of their own to the needs of people around them. That's what I was talking about earlier. And again, it's not to down our country. We're very generous, but but we don't do well at asking the question, what do they need instead of what do I want to give? Because sometimes when we say, what do I want to give? That's really about our interests. It's not about somebody else's interest. It's asking that question. What does somebody really need? And it was interesting. I would listen to this report this morning. This, this lady who, she's kind of a, a part of an organization that oversees a lot of charitable organizations and a lot of relief organizations, and she kind of coordinates this, this kind of this association. And she said, you know, the thing that, that really relief organizations need the most and people need the most in disaster is they don't need supplies, they need money. She said, because what people don't understand, they think, oh, well, I can just send water or send clothes or even send food but what she said they don't understand is two things, that they don't know if that's exactly what the, those people need. And she said the other thing it does, she said when you give money and then locally that money can be distributed for the purchase of supplies, she said it actually helps the local economy. She said because when you, and if you send water, it takes a while to get there, but if you send money and water can be bought on the spot, he said, she said it helps the local economy and then it's always fresh and it's always l- easily accessible because it's local. And you never see that, but that's asking that question, what's really needed here? If I'm gonna live generously, and so when we think of our lives, what do other people need? Not do I think they need, or what I want them to need, but what do they really need? And do I look out for their interests as I look out for the interests of my own? There's a pastor in Ohio, in Ohio his name's Michael Slaughter, and he, he's an amazing guy, and I've read a couple of his books, but I heard him speak one time, and he, he talked about living out this concept where I don't only think about my own interests, but I think about the interests of others around me. And he said years ago, he and his wife, when they first had their kids, they had, I think they had three kids, is they made a decision that as, as he was pastoring a church that they would find a family in their church that they could treat just like they treated their kids. So they found a single mom with three kids. And so I think this was for at least at least a 10-year span. They made a commitment to this single mom and her kids. They said, whatever we do for our kids, we will do for your kids. So two of his kids needed braces, and I think two of the kids from with, with the single mom needed braces. So when his kids got braces, those two kids got braces on his dime. And then when they would, every year when they would buy clothes for school and they would get new backpacks, all six of them would go shopping together because he would buy for those kids as though they were his own. And they did this through medical appointments and food and all the things that they needed. And he did this because he was making the statement not only that he cared for this family, but he was constantly going to look for the interests of other people outside of his own family. Because for him, he said, it's easy for me to care for my kids. I love them. But it's harder for me to care for somebody else that I don't know as well. And I remember that, that, I heard that probably 15 years ago, and it, and it never left me. I thought, that is the true sacrifice, reaching outside of yourself. Think, what if one of them had special needs, and one of them had, and he shared stories about some of them had some medical problems, and he had to pay more than he paid for his own kids, because he made that commitment to look out for the interests of other people. And then finally, the final thing in verse 5 is we love as Jesus loves when we live sacrificially. So, John, or Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, we're not going to read the rest of the passage, but if you want to go on to the rest of the passage, then Paul starts to talk about how Jesus lived this out. 
how even though he was God in human flesh, he never allowed his divinity to be part of his own agenda, to use it for his own benefit. In fact, it says that he actually became, what, humble and obedient to become a servant, to become a human being, and he went beyond that. He actually was willing to be obedient to death and death on a cross, which is the most horrific way to die, for our benefit. As the demonstration of this is what a loving relationship looks like with people. Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of that. So when we think about that in our lives, we think about how well do I sacrifice myself for other people? Now, when you think about sacrifice, one of the things that I think it's, it's easy to kind of almost like step out from, which is when Jesus sacrificed everything, he gave his life. And we hear great stories of heroes, you know, if someone in the military, or, or I saw a, a, a video thing last night where two dads jumped into uh, some water at a beach where a kid was going to get, literally, he's getting pummeled into rocks, he's going to drown, and they dive in at their own peril and they save his life. It's just this great thing. And so you think about that, that's sacrificing. I'm willing to put my life on the line for people. Probably 99% of us in this room will never face that scenario. We'll never have to literally physically put our lives on the line for anybody else. But every single day we have our face with, am I going to give up my comfort and my convenience for other people around me? Am I going to sacrifice my normal daily routine of what I like to do and what is easy for me for the benefit of other people? That's, for some of us, is almost a bigger challenge than that heroic moment when we're called upon to save somebody's life that will never come. But every single day will I allow myself to be inconvenienced for the purpose of God in somebody else's life. That's a harder question. And I'll be very transparent. This is authentic. I'll be authentic with you. So we foster kids. And so we've been fostering for a couple years. And we've had to take a break because uh, we came through a break in the summer. And then Kim had surgery. And then we moved. And so we had to renew our license. And we just finished that, that renewal process. And so we're back in the system to have kids in our house again. But as I'm going through that and I'm thinking, you know, and I've mentioned this when we first started fostering, I'll be honest with you, the thought of fostering is far more exciting than actually fostering. Those of you who foster and those of you who have little kids know that's true. And, and so I'm thinking, yeah, you know, we're going to get into the new house, which we moved in, and the social worker came out and did the whole thing, and the house passed, and we got the license, and it's getting issued. I'm like, yeah, we're going to foster. And then I always had a moment of silence there, just sitting there, and I'm like, oh, man. I remember a year ago when we had Angela. I remember 1 a.m. in the morning. I remember 4 a.m. in the morning. I remember poopy diapers. And I remember, you know, you just want to run to the store, but you can't just run to the store because you got to take what? You got to take the, the baby in the, in the baby car seat. And then when you get to the store, you have to put him in the stroller. And then it takes like 10 times longer, right? And I'm thinking, honestly, oh, man. It looks better on the outside to sacrifice. But man, this is going to be hard again. And then God reminded me. This is one of the things that I almost need to write somewhere very significant. It's not about you, is what came through loud and clear. And I remember when, when the Lord spoke that to me and just reminded me that again, it's not about you, it's about the kids and their families. And then I remember that's what this is about. And I remember the families that we've had encounters with. And some of you got to know Tina and Noah Miller, which was... Noah was the first baby to come into our house, and Tina, we never invited her to church, but she came and came for a year before they moved to Virginia, and I love Tina, and many of you love Tina, and that was her first kind of context of really understanding God's love, and, and other kids that we've had, and, and the relationship that carries on, and we've seen two of our babies get reunited with family members, which is huge, and so you're seeing that experience, and God's reminding me, it's not about you. 
You can handle 1 a.m. You can handle the poopy diaper. Why? Because it's about what you can give up so that others can benefit from you sacrificing your time. Now, that's not a plug for fostering, but maybe it is. But it's a plug for what is it in our life that you and I struggle with giving up sacrificially so that others might benefit. If we're truly going to love each other, that means that my radar is constantly on for other people around me. When I get up in the morning, what's going on in my household? When I get out on the road and I'm going to work, what is going on in the cars around me? Not who's the idiot that just cut me off, but what is going on in their life? Who is, what's happening to the coworker who I struggle with working with or the supervisor who thinks that, that I'm not a good employee or the person that I'm over that I really want to fire but I can't? What's going on in their lives? What am I going to do personally to sacrifice something of who I am for their benefit so that ultimately, relationally, we can be healthy? Or maybe we even make it more close to home. What do I need to sacrifice for my spouse in order for them to experience more of what God wants in their life? Where am I willing to be inconvenienced for my spouse or my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my sister or my brother or my parents? Where am I willing to do that? Or for the person in this church who's offended me and I come to a different service because I don't want to see them. Where do we do that? See, if we embrace this kind of a rhythm in our life, we wouldn't have to worry about gossip. We wouldn't have to worry about hatred. We wouldn't have to worry about confusion and darkness and creating a stumbling block. We'd actually have healthy relationships. And then the very thing that Jesus said we would be known by will be true, which, what did he say? They will know us if we love one another. When the world looks at the church, should see, wow, there's a bunch of messed up, different people who found a way to love and live together in unison for a purpose. That's hard to come by. That's what the church is supposed to be. I'm gonna ask you if you just close your eyes. The worship team's gonna come, and we're gonna... We're gonna lean into worship together for the remainder of our time. But I want you to go back in your own mind right now to when we started just a little while ago. I want you to go back to that person or that, that handful of people that you had at the beginning, which was the context for what we were talking about today. And maybe if you didn't start with that person, maybe somewhere through what we were gleaning from the scriptures, the Holy Spirit highlighted somebody that you know, yeah, things aren't quite right with them and I know that something needs to change. What I'm gonna encourage each one of us to do as a point of applying the reality of what we've just learned to our lives is that person or that, those people that God has brought to our mind about the brokenness in our relationship, about the, maybe the bitterness or even the hatred in our heart towards that other person or maybe we know that they have that towards us. That God, God doesn't want that to be a part of our story. He doesn't want that to be a part of the reality of who we are. He, he wants our relationship with him to be right while our relationships with each other are right. And so what this means is in order for there to be health and relationship with that person that you have in your mind, somebody has to take action. Somebody has to do something. Somebody has to initiate. Somebody has to be the one that seeks peace. Somebody has to be the one that initiates reconciliation. And you just happen to be here this morning and happen to hear this message. And guess what? You're the person. You're the one that God's calling to at least attempt to reconcile a broken relationship. And that might mean there's a full phone call that needs to happen. That might mean there's a meeting that needs to occur. There might be an email or a note or a letter that needs to be written. But God's saying there has to be something, something that initiates forgiveness and desires reconciliation. 
and desires to bring back relationships into the right context of what God created them to be, and that is love. And so whatever that looks like for you this week, that's what God's calling to you. But I want to also, because I know every time I've spoken on broken relationships, this, this comes up. And that is you may, and maybe you already have it, you'll strive to bring reconciliation to a broken relationship in your life and discover that the person on the other side has no interest in reconciling, which is sad really for them. Because Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with people. God's desire is for you to be the initiator of peace. We would desire that the person on the other side would reciprocate that. But if they don't, that is their responsibility before God, not yours. God will not hold you responsible for someone's response to your initiation of reconciliation. So don't be afraid of how they will respond but be obedient to what God has called you to do. And so I ask you with your eyes closed, that that person is in your mind, and now we're going to pray. And I'm going to ask that you would begin to pray as well, that God would give you the words, the courage, the grace, the mercy to work towards navigating that broken relationship. Lord Jesus, we thank you that even though we were the offenders in the relationship we have with you, with the Father, with God, that we were the ones that did wrong. You did nothing wrong. You initiated the the journey to become human, to live a life we couldn't live, to die on the cross for our sin and our brokenness so that we could be reconciled back to God. And so, Lord, you call us to do the same, to extend love and mercy and grace. And so, Lord, give us the courage this week to be people who initiate healthy relationships. And, Lord, even if we're afraid or we're afraid of the response or we don't have the courage, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, infuse us with supernatural courage to fight for and contend for and maintain and live in and sustain healthy relationships with each other. Because, Lord, we know that's where we're supposed to live. That's the context. That's authenticity. And we know, Lord, that ultimately that's what pleases you. That's what impacts our relationship with you. And then, Lord, the result is we will allow the world to see what it really means to know you and to be transformed by you. We thank you, Jesus, in your name.